This is your coffee break. Hi, Sarah. How are you doing today? Good. How about you? Good. What's been the absolute highlight of your day today? Oh, well, clearly this call. <laughs> My victory of Skype. <laughs> Good. <laughs> it's the little things, really. It's the little things that That's keep right. us going. It really is. It is. <laughs> also, um, okay, I'm trying to see your earrings better. They're just like dangly yellow balls. They're really cute, and I love them. Thank you. So, yes. Thank you. I was like, oh, man, I have a Skype interview with a woman who spent, I believe, 20 years in the fashion industry. I did. Yes, I did. And mm -hmm. I'm like, mm, well, <laughs> good thing this is a podcast. So, oh, Diane, it is such a pleasure to have you on today's show. I would love if you wouldn't mind starting us off with just a little bit of an elevator speech about who you are and what you do. Well, uh, you already touched upon my fashion background. I have about 20 years, a little over 20 years in the fashion industry, from everything from selling to buying to managing, um, director, different things like that. Most recently, sales associate out here in California, which I left because I wanted to focus on writing. I had been working in writing at the same time, and it was a lot, and I really got to a point where I knew my passion was writing, specifically writing mysteries. So now I'm writing four series. Uh, was three. The fourth one just came out last week, uh, which is A Disguise to Die For, which is the first in a costume shop mystery series. And uh, in a nutshell, me in a nutshell, I would say I am who I am because of three fictional characters, not counting family influence. I would say Barbie, Trixie Belden, and Rocky Balboa. And that pretty much tells you who I am. I want to know more. <laughs> Barbie definitely influenced the fashion interests and just the, one, the clothing, whole clothing thing. Uh, Trixie Belden as a teen sleuth, those were the books I read growing up. And Rocky Balboa, well, I'm from Pennsylvania, Eastern Pennsylvania. I really connect with that whole message of people don't believe that you can do something and you work hard and you prove them wrong. And I think that mentality has served me well over my entire life. Tell me a little bit more about that, the Rocky Balboa mentality. I want to know, um, what, what have you overcome? I'm just so curious to hear more about this. I mean, I can go back to college and I can go back to meeting with a professor about graduation and saying I'm going to double up on my courses so that I can get on track because I wasn't the best student early on as a freshman. And he said, no, I don't think you can do it. I don't, you know, based on what your grades were and based on your performance, if you double up on courses, you're probably going to fail out. And I thought, you're my advisor. <laughs> I think you're supposed to be a little more positive. <laughs> but again, I had that instinct, like, I'm going to prove you wrong. So I doubled up on the courses. And that was when my grades turned around. And I got back on track. And I graduated on time. So that was just one example of it. I think, you know, writing is a difficult thing. And it's a lonely thing. And sometimes family doesn't understand what it takes to sit in a chair and do it. And there's, it's easy to say, that's a hobby. That's fun. But when it kind of shifts and becomes, this is what I want to do, you know, a lot of people think you can't do that. You can't say you're going to be a writer. So again, it's that proving that you can. It's that finding the way to make it happen and do it yourself and make the commitment. So I think that's kind of the Rocky Balboa mentality. I love that. <laughs> what, gave you, what gave you the courage to pursue that? I mean, going from, you know, a quote unquote, like a real profession to writing, what helped you make that jump? I have always been a very creative person, and even when I worked in corporate and held the job in that world, I, my creativity was what got me through everything, and that was where I excelled, was whenever I had that freedom. 
So I started seeing how much creativity I had with the writing and I had a little bit of success. I didn't quit right away, but I had, uh, I started self-publishing and then I had a series with a small press and then I had a contract with a big five publisher. And then I kind of started thinking, I had other ideas, but I thought, you know, I've got a lot going on and I have more than one idea. So if I have more time to dedicate to this, I think I can really, I'm really going to improve my quality of life because it's what I want to do. And it, you know, it seems like when you get to a crossroads, sometimes you have to be able to make sacrifices and say like, this is what's going to make me happy. Maybe this is what's more lucrative right now, but who knows five years down the line where I'm going to be. So I think that was really when I made that decision, not wanting to look back and say, I should have done it. Good for you. That's such a hard thing to do. To let go and take that jump. (laughs) But, you know, the jumps always feel good. The the leap of faith, the jumping off, it's scary, scary, scary. But the risks, that's what feels good. And that's what I think makes us all kind of feel alive a little bit and makes us look back and say, like, wow, do you remember when I did that thing that nobody thought I could do? And that's those are the things that make life kind of worth living. They are. (laughs) <laughs> so so you're somebody who really treasures and appreciates sort of the things that make you feel alive. But you're also a mystery writer who writes about murders and being dead. And so yes. I, want, <laughs> I want to ask you, um, Trixie Belden was, was obviously for you sort of an, an entrance into the, the mystery genre. What else drew you to mystery? I love the puzzle. I love the systematic, the solving of the puzzle. And as much as I have that creative side, I also have a very analytical side. I like to say between my parents, my mom is a seamstress and my dad is, was a scientist. So it's like being the love child of Edith Head and Spock. You know, <laughs> you kind of, that all comes together. So, um, so I do love that analytical side of things. And even when I worked in retail, when I, be, when I was training to be a buyer, that was something they said to me that really resonated. They said, you know, buyers are creative, but buyers are analytical. And all of a sudden it was like this light bulb went off and I thought, oh, holy cow, that makes sense to me. Same thing with mysteries. I think there's a lot of creativity in the world building and, and the plot and the subplots, but there's a lot of that very systematic finding the clues, red herrings that all lead to something so that you end up at the end with a, a solution that makes sense. It's not out of left field. Yeah. So I think that's really where the, the draw for mysteries came from, along with Trixie Belden. <laughs> along with Trixie Belden. Sort of thinking about that, you know, talking about putting a puzzle together. I know that that's something that the reader does on the side of, of reading a mystery. You know, we're looking for those clues. We're trying to puzzle out what those red herrings might be and avoid them. What is it like on the other side? What is it like when in crafting a mystery? I am what you call a pantser, meaning I write by the seat of my pants. I don't outline, <laughs> I don't plot ahead of time. I don't really know what's going to happen. Sometimes I don't even know who the killer is when I'm writing. So as I'm writing, I'm discovering things, which I think I'm discovering them as the reader would discover them. You know, the first half of the book is very freeing because I'm kind of creating suspects and I'm creating the clues. I don't even know where they're going to end up. And sometimes when I, if I get a little stuck, I can go back to the beginning and read and I'll think, oh, I forgot that I did that. I can go back to that point. So it's all this like what triggers, you know, in my mind um, to kind of pull it all together at the end. So sometimes I end up with a kind of messy first draft and it does require more editing to go back and make sure that it's cleaned up because sometimes there's like a tangent that I went off on and I never wrapped that up. So uh, yeah, I definitely have to play with things like that to get a good final product, but that's, that's really my process. 
Very cool. So I made some notes here. You know, we, we live in this internet age where, you know, you're kind of a stalker by default if you do anything online. And so I hope this isn't creepy. Yeah. Sorry, that's kind of a weird preface for a question. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm supposed to ask you about how a teddy bear inspired you to write your, your latest uh, mystery series. I was in New York. I was meeting my agent and editor for the first time. Uh, it was before Halloween. And we were talking about costumes. And I was telling them, I have a, a tradition where I make a Halloween costume for my teddy bear. I was telling them about how funny it was that year he was going to be a Yeti. So I had cut out like a little white fur and I would so and I was sticking him in this little white fur suit. And I said, you can't imagine how funny it is to like stick this little bear in this little white fur suit. And all of a sudden he has vampire teeth on him and he's a little Yeti. And my agent just said, you know, I think she clicked on like how excited I was about the costumes. And she said, that would make a really good series cozy series set in a costume shop and I I was like don't don't toy with me <laughs> because that sounds like a lot of fun to write so from there it went to um the publisher had a little bit of interest so they said let's you know tentative they said let's see concepts let's see a proposal let's see some sample chapters so I went through kind of all of that and put together the whole proposal package and then they ended up buying a three book series so that was how my teddy bear <laughs> kicked it all off <laughs> I love that. I love that. And so, okay, so this is based on, so you're, you had your teddy bear with you. This is something you were obviously passionate about. Do you feel like this series more than any other, uh, you've written, I think this is your fourth series. All right. Yeah. Since this one's based on something you're so passionate about, was it different to write this or easier to write it or more fun to write? Or was it was it different in any way? Well, I think each of my series pulls upon something that is pretty personal mm -hmm. to me, which makes it easier for me to write them. I get in touch with different parts of myself for each and that's why I can keep them separate I do remember when I was writing this one it felt so easy mm. I, I do set a word count goal and so I was trying to write 2,500 words a day I usually try more than that but I thought oh I have time so let's just write it what felt like a civilized face to me <laughs> and and every day I was hitting that word count and I was happy with what I was writing and it, it fell together and I ended up with it when it was done and I thought I actually don't think this is a particularly messy draft either. I think there's, you know, some, some editing that needs to happen. There always is, but it was pretty much when it was done, it was pretty close to where it ended up being. So I do think there was something just fun about the process and it, it was a kind of easy as it all came together. But I also think first books are so much fun because you're making up the characters the first time and you're making up the town the first time. You can't accidentally make a left turn, a wrong left turn in a first book because the street might be a left turn only. When you go to book two, you have to remember what streets in your town are one way. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit more. Yeah. Like, you know, you have to remember all that stuff. Yeah. Tell me more about writing a series, the, maybe the trappings that come with it, but maybe also some benefits. The trappings are that you do have to remember what you what you created in that first book and take pretty good notes. Uh, I always like to think I have it all in my mind and I don't have it all <laughs> in my mind. So there's always something that I forgot. Sometimes like when I'm writing it, all of a sudden I'm like, wait, what color was that car? So I have to go back and check things like that. But I think what's great about it is you get to build these characters and you get to revisit them in the next book and you get to, you know, they get to experience life. They get to grow and change and, 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 and interact in interesting ways, like real people, you know, so we get to control that, but they're always a little more clever because they have time, you have time to think of what they should say instead of real life when you always think of the right thing to say after the fact. Oh, every time, every time. I'd be like the genius <laughs> of the century if I had a time machine. I want to ask you two <laughs> questions. <laughs> 
Sure. Uh, the first one is there's the one book mentality. There's the series mentality. You have four series. How does that work? <laughs> well, it's a little bit of a juggling act. The first series that I wrote was a former fashion buyer who gave up her job and moved home to her, the house that she grew up in, home, small town, the town where she grew up. And that was when I was a fashion buyer. So mm-hmm. it was very much, I was experiencing that life. I was probably having a bad day because I was writing about somebody who gave that whole world up, but I was still in that world. So that became, it was the easy, it still is probably the easiest series for me to write because I can so quickly get in touch with that character. Mm-hmm. And I've written the most about her because I kept writing about her. As I was trying to get the first book published, I just kept writing more stories with her. Then the second series I came up with, which was Madison Knight, I got the idea of a mid-century modern interior decorator who's kind of modeled her whole life after Doris Day. So she studies Doris Day movies, so she knows how to decorate in that style. And I thought, I'm, I'm going to write the book exactly like the fashion books, but it's a different character. As soon as I started writing, I realized that doesn't work because she's older, she has a different life, her voice is different, and that was the first time I realized I had this whole separate set of characters to write about. So those were two. And then I had an opportunity to submit a proposal to Berkeley. Um, Berkeley is an imprint of Penguin Random House. And they looked at the first fashion book that I had written and they said, we like it, but it's not exactly right for our line. It's not a Berkeley cozy. Are you willing to rewrite it? And I was planning on self-publishing it at that point. And I said, no, thank you. I want to do this one on my own. They said, we really like your voice. Do you have any other ideas? And I said, well, I've always kind of thought it would be interesting to have a character who inherits a fabric shop. So they said, have at it. Put together a proposal, send it to us. And that became the Material Witness Mysteries. So that was kind of born out of that whole little fashion world. And then the costume shop one, I wasn't looking for a fourth series, but that meeting was just so productive. And this came up and I thought, how can I say no to a costume shop mystery (laughs) inspired by a teddy bear? But like I was saying, each series does connect back to something that is a personal core issue. So it's possible for me to kind of get into that mindset when I'm writing that series. And then I can think along the lines of that character. So do you think of your novels then as being like primarily character driven? Do the characters come first for you? I do. I think they do. I think there's always setting. Setting is very important, um, but I think character is really, really critical. So I think that is the main driving thing for me. Me too. I appreciate that. (laughs) I know that that's how I connect with books is through those characters. So I'd said I had two questions I wanted to ask you. The second one, I'm, I'm taking it that you sew. I do. I'm not an expert by any stretch. My mom is an expert, so that's a little bit, you know, intimidating. Uh, I always considered myself a pretty decent beginner, but I just recently taught myself how to make buttonholes. So now I feel like I'm a, I've entered into intermediate. (laughs) I think so. (laughs) That felt like a really big accomplishment for me. I asked that because I knit a little bit. I think a lot of people knit a little bit. And I do it as like a creative outlet, a way to kind of wind down. But that's also, you know, what I use writing for as well. Do you ever have any tension between those two? Or are you kind of just writing all the way? Is that your kind of main creative outlet? Writing is definitely the main creative outlet. But I do have other things that I do that also are creative outlets. Sewing being one of them. Sewing occupies a whole other part of my mind. So it's a nice thing to do at the end of the day. Um, I love doing graphic things on the computer. So I I do my own website and bookmark design and, and kind of graphic media like that. I just really enjoy it. Again, it's a different part of my mind Mm -hmm. than the writing. 
So it's still an outlet and it still allows everything to be fun. I appreciate that perspective. I know that sometimes Mm -hmm. there's a tension in, you know, being creative at work and it sounds like you had a deeply creative and analytical job and then coming home and still having energy to be creative in the way that you want to be creative for your own stuff. So I kind of, I kind of appreciate that. I, yes, I, I was lucky in that when I worked full time, I wrote on my lunch break. So that one hour in the middle of the day became a very valuable time for me. So what I would do is I, w- I got very good at turning it on and off. Mm. So as soon as that hour came up, I could sit down and I could start writing right away because I knew the clock was ticking. And if I sat there and stared at the screen for half an hour, that was half an hour. I didn't get anything done. So again, um, now even if I have a little bit of time, I can just sit down and go. But if I have a full day, I sometimes fritter away a lot of the day because I have the time. So let's see. I have a couple things that I want to talk about. I guess that's kind of stupid to say I have a couple things I want to talk about. Obviously, I have a lot of things I want to talk about. (laughs) I want to talk about cozies. Why are cozies getting so big? I think they provide a really good escape. Mm -hmm. Even though they're murder mysteries, I think there's something comforting about them and the small town feeling and the... The sense of community in the books, even though there's usually a bad element, which is why there's a murder, but there is also that either family is important or that people rallying together around someone who is maybe suspected of having committed a crime but didn't commit the crime. So I think there is like a warm, fuzzy feeling that comes from them. And I know, um, I, I, I just, I think people right now, there's something very popular in the escapism in that, you know, and I think just even the idea of a little bit of humor with the mystery is fun. You know, it just, it takes it to a different place. I know I've been recently, I've been watching Rosemary and Time, the TV show, and it, it's so fun and it is that cozy world, but visually realized. So it's just definitely, um, there's definitely something about it that kind of takes you out of this world that we're living in right now and just lets you exist on a sillier, lighter plane. <laughs> what do you think about that escapism? I mean, is I, I guess I don't want to ask if it's a good or a bad thing, but is it something people should be aware of that like, oh, hey, I should acknowledge that I'm escaping into this or do you think it's okay just to kind of have fun with it? I think it's okay to have fun with it. I think... Um, you know, there are books that are super, super dark and some people escape into those. And there are there are books that are, you know, there's rom-coms and there's one escapes into them differently. You know, they find what it is that pulls them out of the life that they, they need to get away from. So I think as long as people are reading, it's all good. I will agree with that. <laughs> I will just give that a thumbs up. Reading is, for me, the, the best kind of escapism. Yes. So we, you talked a little bit earlier about crafting cozies in a different way, uh, one way or another, depending on the publisher. Um, and that's something that I'm not sure a lot of beginner writers know a whole lot about. Can you tell me a little bit about the, the branding that kind of comes along with writing a cozy or with writing anything um, to a specific publisher? Sure. I think um, with me, the, the, the fashion series, the style and error series that I started with, it was cozy in the very broad umbrella of meaning there's no graphic sex, there's no graphic violence, there's no heavy swearing. But it was much more focused on the character than the setting. And she was a little bit, it was probably towed more of a line of a chiclet miss. Um, and I think with the fashion angle, it also wasn't very crafty. Hmm. So when Berkeley showed some interest and they said, you know, we like it, but we know it's not, it doesn't fit our line of cozies and they have a very strong brand which is very heavily focused around the setting around the small Mm. town around that 
feeling when you're reading the book, feeling like you are like all the senses are alive. The smell of the bread shop next to where you're at, and the or the birds chirping or whatever it might be. But bringing all of that into this small world and and really immersing the reader in that. So I knew that what I had written wasn't exactly what they published. And at that point, I had revised that book so many times over the years, and I I had gotten it to a point where now because I wanted to do it myself. I wanted it to be the book that I wanted it to be. I didn't want to make any more sacrifices to someone else. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure about this decision. I'm sure about taking charge of my career. You know, I, I didn't have doubts about When I decided to self-publish, I didn't have any doubts about it. I did a lot of research ahead of time. So when they asked, I said, you know, no, thank you. It's a great opportunity, but no, thank you. But yes, I'm open to something else. And when I wrote that first book for them, which was, turned out to be Swayed to Rest, that I really wrote it with them in mind. Mm -hmm. So as I wrote, and it was a little, it was an adjustment for me writing in that manner because they kept saying, cozy it up more, Mm -hmm. cozy it up more. And I kept thinking, okay, I'm, I'm not sure what else you want at first. But then as I, I would, I would actually change the color of the font. I would change the font to red and I would write what I thought they wanted like, I would just write about fabric because it was in a fabric shop. So instead of being about the mystery or about a conversation or things like that, I would just write about the character wandering through the fabric store and what the fabrics felt like and what they looked like and what her memories were. So I gave it to one of my early readers. I, I gave it to him, and he read it, and he said, I especially liked the part about the fabric. And I thought, okay, in my mind, I'm not – that's such a – it wasn't what I was expecting, and that was what – and he put it very eloquently. He said, it gives me a chance to breathe between all the action. Oh. And I started realizing, okay, now I'm getting it a little bit. Because this isn't a race to the finish thriller. This isn't a ticking clock. This isn't that that kind of mystery. This is something a little different. And it is about the lifestyle and the, the world that the character's in. And then I just, you know, with the costume shop one, I just jumped in with both feet and, and really had fun with that part of things. Oh, I like that. I was going to ask you about kind of the difference between self-publishing and then publishing for someone else. What about the other side of that publishing for yourself? Did that kind of end in the way that you kind of hoped and wanted it to? I still keep that series and I, it's still going and I still self-publish it. And I love the control I have there. And it does give me a, it gives me a certain creative outlet. But it also really taps into that analytical side that I have that I maybe don't get to use as much with the other ones. Hmm. So I'm very happy to keep it. I'm very happy what it does for me. And um, it does feel personal because it is that journey of that character who was the former fashion buyer who isn't anymore. So I can constantly go back and I understand who she is. So, but it, you know, there's work involved. There's you realize that it's all your responsibility. Everything's your responsibility. You can task things out, but at the end of the day, it's your book. You know, you really do have to wear a lot of hats. Definitely. Do you have any advice for people who are looking to self-publish? Find out what other people did. Uh, look at books that you that were self-published and, and look at books that were not self-published that you think are similar to what you're writing so you can get a sense of what, how to do it the right way and how they're marketing it and how they're, what, what the covers look like and how they're positioning it and who their fans are and, and all of that kind of stuff. You really want to absorb as much as you can ahead of time so that you have some kind of path that you're following. You're not just trying to make it up as you go. Mm. That's, I, I think the, the mistake that people make is rushing, being too quick to put something out. So too I think quick. it's always worth, you know, take a little extra time and, and check things and, and ask questions. 
that's very important. That is excellent advice. I know that like for me, when I get really excited about something, I just want to go do it. So it's good yeah. to know. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the thing is, there's a lot of steps involved. So it's the good thing is you can actually start doing things and give yourself six months and you'll still be doing things every day before it gets going. So oh you'll, you can still be very busy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I bet. Oh, gosh. Since we're almost wrapping up our time here, do you have time for two more questions? Absolutely. Perfect. Uh, The first one, what would you say it takes to write a good mystery? I think it does take, um, hmm, takes courage. Hmm. I think first and foremost, because you have to believe that what you're doing is it, that it's valuable, that it's not just an exercise in creative writing, that it actually, there's a point to it. And the thing about a mystery is it does have those plot points. It does have those red herrings. It does have that connect the dots feeling about it. So I think you have to have a little bit of courage to let go and not have it be too systematic, but not have it be too crazy. I mean, it has to make sense too. So you have to bring those things together. That sounds really complicated. (laughs) (laughs) So does that just take practice then uh, kind of feeling things out? I think the number one thing somebody can do is read Mm. a lot. I really do think reading is the the best lesson because you read a lot of mysteries, you start to absorb the timing. And even though I write by the seat of my pants, I do keep a spreadsheet that logs where I am in my in the process of my book. So I know that by page 75, I want to make sure I've introduced all the suspects. And I know when I'm approaching that halfway point or that 100 page mark or the three quarter, you know, or 66 percent plot twist. So you get, you start to discover the rhythm of them, but you don't know that unless you've read a lot of them. So I think really the easiest and the cheapest lesson, if you have a library card, is just to read, read, read. Amen to that. Amen to that. That's one thing that I say all the time is you can never, never read enough. So yes. Exactly. I want to ask you about Sisters in Crime. Can you tell me a oh, little yes. bit about that? Yes, absolutely. Sisters in Crime is a national nonprofit. They advocate for the advancement, recognition, and professional development of women crime writers. So their their primary goal is education. But for me, the number one thing they provided for me was a community. Because like I was saying earlier, um, sometimes it, the people who are in your life don't know how hard it is to sit at a computer and make up stories. And, you know, and sometimes you're on a deadline, sometimes you're not on a deadline, but it's kind of a weird process and it's a weird life. And sometimes you're, you know, you're on a high because you think you wrote brilliant stuff. And sometimes you're on a low because you think you wrote horrible stuff. Mm -hmm. So sisters really became my community. It became a place where I could ask questions because there's always someone who knows more than you. And the members are so generous and so free with their knowledge And that also became incredible. In fact, some of my opportunities came to me because people who were in that organization helped me out. Getting my book in front of the editor at at Berkeley was because of a fellow sister in crime who I had asked to blurb my book and she read it and she passed it along. Those contacts, you don't just wake up one day and call up a best-selling author and say, hey, you don't know me, I need your help. (laughs) You know, those, those contacts happen over time, but Sisters really was that community for me. And I think I wouldn't have four series if it wasn't for my involvement with that organization. So I love going out on the idea of writing community. I think that's so essential that every writer have a group, whether it's online, in person. Do you guys meet in person then? 
We do. We have, uh, there's the national organization and then there are chapters. Mm. So my local chapter is Los Angeles, but on the national website, anyone can go and find their local chapter and they're very welcoming. So that there's that. There's also at, at the mystery conferences that happen over the course of a year, the sisters group usually gets together for a breakfast, gets together for some meeting, things like that. So there's definitely, you know, you always have a friend at the conference because you're a part of the organization and there's always somebody else there. I love that. Diane, I want to be respectful of your time, so I'm going to let you go. But thank you so, so, so much for sharing your wisdom today with us. Like, you oh, are Thank just... you, Sarah. This is great. <laughs> All right. You take care of yourself. Um, oh, oh, uh, I want to make sure to encourage people to visit dianevalere.com. That's D-I-A-N-E-V-A-L-L-E-R-E.com. Diane, thank you again so much for your time. You have a great evening. Thank you, Sarah. You too. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.